We are continuing in our journey that I'm calling Gospel 2.0 because I'm completely devoid of creativity. Amen? Uh, Last year I shared with you, we kind of went through this Gospel series where we took selected selections from the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, and studied them, just kind of sat down in the text and looked at each one. This year we're looking at how the gospel kind of transformed as the early church began to interpret it. And so we're looking not at the first four books of the Bible, but some of the other books from the New Testament. And we'll be selecting a reading each week that we will then kind of just um, expose the meaning of and, and sit down in there and kind of see what it says. And um, there is an element of this, and I, I, don't want you, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. It's not random. But there's an element of this that I am allowing essentially someone else to pick my text each week. Now, here's why I'm doing that. Sometimes when pastors always choose the text, you pretty much get the same sermon all the time. You get what they're concerned about, what they're on fire about, what they're thinking about all the time. So part of my theory and part of my journey over the last several years has been to make it my point to read scriptures that I wouldn't necessarily choose to read, but simply to allow another schedule or someone else to step in and kind of say, how about this one? And by doing that, it forces me to study scripture that I wouldn't typically study. I know you don't care. All of that simply to say, some of these texts are hard. They're difficult. They are not what I would choose if I was just gonna randomly pick one to preach from. And the fact that you have to dig deeper Um, does something inside of us, and I think it challenges us to look at every text as if it's as important as the ones that we love to revisit on a regular basis. Do you get what I'm saying? And so I'm excited about the series, and I'm excited about this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Galatians this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And to just give you a little bit of background on what's happening so that you don't feel completely kind of just left in the cold there, this is a letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia, and he's basically writing to them to help encourage them that they need to stay true to the faith that he gave them. And by the faith that he gave them, what he's talking about is the truth that Jesus Christ is enough. He's all you need. To come to God and to accept him, to be a part of God's family, to be a follower of of Jesus, all you need, Paul taught them, is grace. All you need is to confess your sins, to accept the free gift of salvation God has given you, and, and then allow the Spirit of God to lead you in that life. Now, unfortunately, in the Galatian church, there were some false teachers that were coming in and teaching them that before they could really be Christian, they had to first become good Jews. You see, in the early church, as the gospel began to spread, Judaism started to kind of push back against the gospel. Now, not in the sense that you might think. There certainly was an element of the Jews trying to quench what Jesus started because they didn't like it, they didn't recognize him, they wanted to do away with this new religion or this new offshoot of Judaism that people were calling the way. That's what what they called it back then. And and the Apostle Paul was right in the middle of that, if you remember. He was one of the people going around persecuting the church, arresting Christians, trying to stamp out this new little sect that had kind of grown up. 
But after that first initial push to get rid of it, once they figured out this isn't going away, some of the Jews actually embraced the faith, started following Jesus, but because of their heritage and their history, they believed that they were doing a service to the kingdom by making sure that everybody that was allowed to be a Christian remained pure in the sense that they were good Jews first. Now, obviously not Jews in nationality, but they wanted them to follow the Old Testament law. And so as people would get saved, mostly Gentiles, these Judaizers, as they were called, would run around and basically teach them, okay, you accepted Jesus, that's all well and good, but you should also be circumcised. How many of you know that circumcision is not necessarily a way to grow your church? Amen? Right? If you got a bunch of adult males in the church and you're saying to them, follow Jesus, it'll be wonderful. And by the way, all you need to do is to go through one simple surgery. I have a feeling that probably they're gonna find another church to go to, amen? I know I would. Some of you men are pretending like that would be acceptable. It would not be acceptable. I am so glad that I was circumcised as a baby and not when I was an adult, because that's not a good thing. And and so there's all this happening, and they were trying to tell them they had to eat certain foods and follow the Old Testament dietary laws, and basically what was happening is they were trying to turn modern Christians into Jews first. And by doing that, they were adding something to salvation. They were adding that you first had to become a good Jew, and then you could become a follower of Jesus. And so Paul, in this passage we're about to read, is addressing that question, which was one of the most important questions that was being asked in the early church. Do you, if you want to follow Jesus, and if you were not born and raised a Jew, did you need to become like a Jew in the sense of following their laws and their rituals in order to be a follower of Jesus. Now, according to what we read in the first couple chapter, or the first chapter, rather, of Galatians, Paul has already told them his thoughts on this, and he has said definitively, absolutely not. If you are a Gentile Christian, you do not have to become a Jew or do any of those old trappings of Judaism in order to follow Jesus. But unfortunately, more people have come in and filtered in, and he's writing chapter two to kind of help defend his position and to straighten them out. So let's read it together, and then we'll kind of zero in a little bit closer. Paul continues with a narrative that he started previously talking about his experiences, and we'll pick it up kind of in the middle. He says, Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus also came along. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. I love the fact that Paul often, when he does things, identifies the fact that he did not do it because he was told to do it. Now, this isn't defiance on his part. He's not saying, well, the Jewish leaders wanted me to come, so I, I, I didn't, but I didn't listen to them. I listened to God. Nobody had asked him to do this. God put it in his heart. God prompted him to go to, to Jerusalem, and he followed the promptings of God. I don't know about you, but that's always a good idea. Amen. If God says do something, just do it. Get it over with. It's kind of like men when your wives ask you to do something. Just do it and get it over with. Move on with life. I'm kidding. It's nothing like that. But you should always listen to God and you should most of the time listen to your wife. Is that acceptable? Some of you are just not giving me anything today. All right, anyway. So, moving on. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be the leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that they were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. They supported me 
and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Now make a note of that. Titus went along kind of as an example of what the Gentile Christians looked like and how they talked and how they thought and what they had been taught. And so Titus was kind of like an example of what Paul was doing. And and so that's an interesting note. Verse 4, even that question about Titus being circumcised came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for even a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. And again, let me just note, Paul is not being defiant. He went to them to talk about this problem. He obviously respects them. What he's saying is, I don't care who you are. If you're wrong, I'm going to call you on it, right? And actually, if we were to go to the next passage, he actually talks about when he had to do that with Peter. So for the time being, though, just remember that Paul is no respecter of persons, and he doesn't believe that just because these leaders of the church are leaders of the church, that their will should supersede that of our Heavenly Father. Amen? No earthly leader should ever be able to trump what God is saying, ever. My eyes are getting really bad. I can't see. All right, verse 7. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, he actually names those church leaders at this point, probably for emphasis. James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift that God had given me. They accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. So that's his defense. That's kind of his argument. And the argument that he's giving is basically the description of an event. Now, what's cool about some places in the New Testament when we read some of the letters of Paul is that if you cross-reference that with the book of Acts, sometimes we can find the actual circumstances that are being described. And just in case you want to do some more study, you can write this down. This particular situation that Paul is essentially describing to the Galatians to defend his case is basically listed, we believe, in Acts chapter 15. Now, there's some difference of opinion about that. Some people believe it was an earlier time that Paul went to see the the church in in Jerusalem, but most agree that this was probably the, the situation in Acts chapter 15 because the subject matter of what they talked about at that meeting was exactly what Paul is talking about here. And so if you go back to that and you want to read the whole story of that that encounter where Paul went and talked to the church leaders and they reaffirmed all of his teachings, you can find that in Acts chapter 15 and I would encourage you to do that. But again, let me just remind you that Paul is wrestling with 
one of the hardest questions of the early church in this passage. Do you have to become a Jew or specifically anything else to follow Jesus? Paul is trying to convince the Galatians to hold on to the freedom that he has already taught them about, the freedom that they have in Christ, and not follow the teachings of a group of people who were trying to reintroduce the, the, the chains and the bondage of the law to Christian people. He want, they wanted them to obey dietary laws. They wanted them to be circumcised. They wanted them to obey certain rituals and Sabbaths and, and feasts and all of these other things, not because they wanted to be devout, but simply because they had to in order to follow Jesus. Paul understood that Christ came to establish a new covenant, a new covenant, and not the old covenant. The old covenant passed away. The new covenant has come we don't have to live by all of the rituals and the teachings of the Old Testament anymore. Now, before you get up and stomp out and tell everybody, Pastor Jeff said, we don't have to do the Ten Commandments anymore. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. The Old Testament law for what it was has passed away. Jesus came to bring a new covenant. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the teachings of Jesus, all of the important stuff from the Old Testament law that we would get all up in arms about setting aside, guess what Jesus did? He reinforced it and reaffirmed it, and all the important stuff is very much still there. But the fact of the matter is, we still have people today who are trying to bring back stuff from the Old Testament and saying, we've got to add this to the faith because they said it in the Old Testament and it's in the Bible. Therefore, we still have to do it today. And I disagree wholeheartedly because we don't choose everything. That's the funny part about those who want to bring it back. Well, you know, the Bible says that we still have to do this because it's in the Old Testament. Okay, are you stoning your children that are disobedient? How about that one? You picking that one up and bringing it forward? Huh? Some of you are, someone's clapping. Wait, What? <laughs> Who was that? We won't watch the video to find out. It's fine. It's fine. It's all good. You know, the, the funny part about the people who want to say, no, no, every jot and tittle of the Bible, absolutely true from beginning to end. What it says in Genesis is just as important as what it says in Revelation. The, the laws for the Jews are just as important as the laws Jesus gave us. No. And you know how I can tell that's true? Because the people that want to bring stuff forward don't bring it all. You either have to bring it all or nothing. You can't say pieces of the Old Testament law apply to today when you're not taking the rest of the Old Testament law and applying it to today. And here's the, here's the, the wonderful part of this. We don't need it because Jesus settled it, right? And, and I'm not proposing that we don't need to follow any kind of code. Jesus established the code when he said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. So anything that you do that is not loving to your neighbor is now forbidden. Try living under that one. Think about the scope of that for a moment, would you? Some of you are unimpressed, I can tell. How many times a day do you do things that are not loving to your neighbor? Or, or let's just go to your children or your spouse. How many times a day do you do things that offend just for the fun of it in our culture today? You get on Facebook and somebody's going off about their political beliefs and you're just snarky to them. Is, is that loving your neighbor? Ooh, it's getting really quiet. <laughs> what about the guy on the highway that cuts you off 
on the way through downtown who doesn't understand the fact that if the merge is this way, that he's the one that has to get out of the way, not you. That's one of my pet peeves, by the way. If I'm in the lane that, I'm, that everybody's merging to, you best get out of my way. I will ride beside you till you run into traffic. That's not loving to your neighbor, though, is it? Listen, Jesus established the standard. And it's a far greater standard than anything you're going to find in the Old Testament. Because Jesus said, listen, it says in the Old Testament you're not to murder. I'm telling you, if you get angry with somebody in your heart, that's just as bad. What? Try living by that. The Old Testament said, don't commit adultery. And it actually gives like all these certain situations which made it okay for men to do that, but not women. That's not good, is it? And Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. What? Boy, that's one that should shake us to the core because today, our entire culture is built around desire and temptation. Listen, Jesus established the standard, but it's not the old standard, it's the new covenant, which is in his blood. And and so Paul is defending that. He's defending that with all of his might. The law showed us our sin, but it was unable to save us because no one could follow all of the law. Therefore, Jesus came. Not only that, but the law, unfortunately, had become a method for powerful people to just control those under them. The Jewish religious leaders were using it to oppress people, to keep people down, to give them no authority, no voice, no opinion, and to make them feel like they were nothing because they couldn't follow the law, even though the Jewish leaders themselves weren't following the law. They made a good play on it, but they didn't do it. The law had become a means of control. Through Christ, salvation became open to everyone, and I, for one, am glad about that because I am not Jewish. Are you? Some of you are, but some of you are not. I'm awfully glad that Christ opened up the doors of faith to everyone. There were those who were still holding on to the Old Testament, and and Paul basically says this can't continue. You're allowing yourselves to be in bondage once again. And so he goes forward with his argument. And again, his arguments are pretty simple. Let me just kind of summarize them real quick. He says, I met with the leaders of the church and told them what I was preaching and they supported me. In other words, listen, if these Judaizers were right and this is the way the church expects you to live, then don't you think when I told them what I was preaching, they would have corrected me. But you know what? They didn't correct me. They said that what I was doing was fine. I even took along a case study, Titus, and they didn't say that Titus needed to be circumcised. So therefore, if Titus didn't need to be circumcised, you don't need to be circumcised. And the thought that enters my head is, who in this church is fighting for that? That's ridiculous. Anyway, he continues. He says there were spies among them trying to push the church to to require circumcision, among other things. But I love when he says we refused to give it to them for just a moment, even a single moment. We did not listen to them. The leaders of the church had nothing to add to Paul's teaching. In other words, it was enough, and they affirmed that his God-given calling was to the Gentiles just as Peter's was to the Jews. And I love it when it says the same God was at work in both of them. God was working to save the Jews while at the same time working through someone else to save the Gentiles. Isn't that exciting? Listen, I got news for you. God is working through every single church that calls upon the name of Jesus in this community to save somebody. And we should never be critical of another church because they're not trying to save the people we are. 
In fact, we should be glad that they're choosing a different people group to, to try to minister to because we can't all connect with everybody. It just doesn't work that way. Now, in a perfect world, the kingdom of God would be red and yellow, black and white, and all are precious in his sight, and we should all be able to get along. We should be able to do um, you know, gospel music. We should be able to do <clears throat> country gospel music. We should be able to do... <laughs> Um, classic gospel music, we should be able to do rock and roll gospel, we should be able to just worship and everybody be happy with everything that happens and you know what, unfortunately that's not who we are because this thing called preference gets in our way. I'm looking forward to heaven because I'm looking forward to seeing some of y'all try not to clap when the choir of heaven is singing, right? And I think in heaven everybody will have rhythm. That's just a thought. (laughs) Even those of us that can't manage it on earth are going to find a way in heaven. And I will say it to you again, heaven, in heaven there will be worship and only worship. When we worship here, all we're doing is practicing for eternity. And so those of you that say, well, I'm just here for the sermon, I don't really connect with the music, (laughs) heaven's going to be a miserable experience for you. I'm kidding. It can't be. It's physically impossible. But listen, If we could all figure out how to worship together, that would be wonderful. But the truth of the matter is, God can work through each of us all the time, even though we're trying to to evangelize and work in, in different directions. And that's what he says. Peter's working in one direction. I'm working in another direction. And the same God is empowering both of us at the same time. Isn't that exciting? Their only suggestion to Paul, I love this last little kind of footnote at the end, the only suggestion was that he remember the poor. You know, and I think Paul included that just because he wanted them to know. Listen, it wasn't, they weren't just yes men. They didn't just say, oh yeah, Paul, you're the greatest. Nothing at all. They did have something to ask. They said, make sure you remember, continue to remember the poor. Because Paul did. In fact, in, in Acts, the first time Paul went to Jerusalem, he was actually delivering money from the churches that he served to the Christians in Jerusalem because they were being persecuted and they were poor and they were starving to death. And so Paul was regularly remembering to collect for the poor and to help them in any way that he could. But, but it's almost like he adds that on to say, listen, they did have instructions for me. I am under their authority. But the fact of the matter is, they are behind me because what I'm preaching is the truth. And therefore, what you've been taught by these Judaizers is not. And so the answer to the question of, is Christ enough or do you need something else is absolutely affirmative. Christ is all you need. So here's the question for our time. Are we requiring anyone to become something else before we allow them to be Christian? Maybe that didn't come across clear. Are we requiring people to be like us before we accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, here's here's the challenge for us, just like it was a challenge for the Jews. The Jews had had a lock on God for so long that they couldn't conceive of a world where you could follow Yahweh without becoming a Jew. They couldn't imagine it. They couldn't imagine that God would accept anybody unless they conformed to the Jewish culture. And Christianity has been around a long time now. And you know what? We've created a culture And we have a hard time in our minds conceiving of a God who would allow people to follow him unless they conform to our culture. Now, it's not as bad as it used to be. When I was growing up, it was clearly evident 
everywhere. We don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. I can't tell you how many times I was told that as a kid. I'm like, seriously, that's what you're going to preach? I don't think the preacher ever said it. It was probably my dad. But listen, there were certain cultural lines that you did not cross. One of the worst for me is alcohol. I grew up believing that drinking alcohol was wrong, period. Because that's what I was taught, okay? Now, I've been confronted about that several times in my adult life. The Bible does not forbid drinking. It forbids drunkenness. Some of you are looking really worried right now. Calm down. But I remember a time in the church of God when it was not acceptable to drink. In fact, I know pastors who are older than me that would marry people and not ever go to the reception because they did not want to know who from their church drank alcohol because they felt like they would have to confront them about it and they didn't want to have to do that so they just had this whole don't ask don't tell kind of thing going on rather than dealing with the question of is this really wrong or is it just part of our culture and to my surprise as I grew up and went through college I found out that in the German church in Germany and even German churches here in America they regularly have beer at their potlucks my guess would be their potlucks are a lot more fun than ours Then I had a pastor tell me, from a different denomination, obviously, you know, if you have a beer, give everybody in your board a beer before you get started, things will go way better. <laughs> and the very thought of it made me cringe. You can't follow Jesus faithfully and drink. Now, keep in mind, I have alcoholics in my family lineage, and I've seen what alcohol has done to their lives, and you will never convince me that I should drink because I've seen the danger of it. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible doesn't condemn it. In fact, there are places in the Bible, unfortunately, where it says that it's good for the tummy and for the soul. Now, the real problem, obviously, we all, I think, understand this, is addiction, right? Addiction is the problem. And being addicted to anything means that you're placing that thing above God. And that's idolatry, really. Even though it's involuntary, even though it's something you really can't help. And so addiction should be the thing we're railing at. But here's the thing. It's part of our culture, or it was, years ago. And now the other side of the coin is being turned. You know, when I was growing up in the church, if you had a tattoo, man, the saints were looking at you carefully to watch to make sure you weren't stealing something. Now you go into a lot of churches, if you don't have a tattoo, they look at you the same way. I know, because I ain't got none. You know why I don't have any? Well, because the Bible says in the Old Testament. Nope, because they hurt. <laughs> Just being honest. Not a thing wrong with it. But don't judge me because I don't have one now. You know, there's a lot of churches that if, if you dress nicely and you walk in the door, they're like, hypocrite. Because, you know, we're real here. And that means ripped jeans and long hair or short hair or I don't even know what it means anymore. But listen, the whole point of it is this. There is a culture that goes along with Christianity. Are we asking anybody to first conform to our culture before they can meet Jesus? Because that's what the Jews were doing. We shouldn't be. The, the, the fact of the matter is Jesus is enough. And you can come to Jesus as you are now, regardless of what your culture is, regardless of what your lifestyle is, regardless of what your attitude is. Even people with bad attitudes 
who drive poorly and scream at other cars can come to Jesus. Even alcoholics who have no desire to get clean yet can come to Jesus. Even people who have gambled away every penny they have and left their family destitute can come to Jesus. Even people that have walked away from their spouse, their kids, their families, for no other reason other than the grass was greener, can come to Jesus. People who are tatted all the way up one arm and down the other, and people who have no tats at all, can come to Jesus. It's not Jesus plus. It's just Jesus. There's no circumcision required. (laughs) You don't have to eat certain foods. Listen, Jesus is enough. And I know we all say a hearty amen to that, but then when we're walking down the street and we see somebody, you know, with a a Christian tattoo, do we suspect, well, tattoo, I mean, do we judge? Do we hold them at arm's length? Listen, all I'm trying to say is this. We should never ask people to be a part of anything before they can come to Christ. And you know what? In the early days of the church of God, that's one of the reasons that our movement started. Because in the the sect that we broke off from, they were requiring membership in some service organization before you could become a member of the church. And the people that were a part of that that started our movement said, you shouldn't have to join any earthly organization to follow Jesus. Because there's only one church, and that's the church that Jesus came to establish. He's enough. I want to invite you to pray with me right now. And then we're going to close. Father in heaven, I I come before you today and I want to speak to you on behalf of those who might be hearing my voice right now, but who have at one time or another in their lives been told or maybe just drew the conclusion that they were not enough to come to you as they are. There might be some who believe that they have to get themselves straightened out before they can come to church. They have to solve their problem with addiction. They have to overcome depression. They have to get their finances figured out. They have to be ready to tithe or ready to dress nice or or rather ready to say the, the right words. And they have to know the Bible or at least something about it before they can come to meet you. And And God, I just ask right now that if there are those hearing my voice, that that has been their reason for not coming to you. That you would right now just speak to their hearts and help them to see that that you ask us to come just as we are. And that you are willing to take us from that place where we are now. And through the power of your spirit, which lives within us after we embrace you, you will help us to become what you desire for us to be. But there is no requirement other than repentance for people to come. God, I ask that you would just take away all those boundaries that sometimes churches set up. And may we not be that kind of church. May we never give the impression that you have to look a certain way or act a certain way to be welcome here. Help us to love everybody regardless, understanding that that once we love them as you loved us, that that they will hopefully find the love that you have for them and accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus died to give us. And once that process begins, then the sky's the limit. You can mold them and shape them into the person that you desire for them to be. And, And that person may not look like me. It may not look like 
our elders. It may not look like our Sunday school teachers, but it will be glorious nonetheless because the same God can work in each and every one of us to prepare us for the ministry that you have for us. So God, I ask that if there is anyone who has not accepted you because they feel like there's some requirement that they haven't met, just like was happening in the time of the Apostle Paul, that you would help them to see that that is a lie from the enemy of our souls, that they can come to you right now by praying a simple prayer of confession that they believe that you died for them, that they know that they're a sinner and that they need the forgiveness that you offer through the cross of Calvary. And God, if there is anyone here that needs to pray that prayer and and you're speaking to them right now, I ask that you would give them the courage maybe to come and talk to me about that so that I can either pray that prayer with them or so that they can just tell me that they did so I can rejoice with them. Whether they're in this room or online or whatever, Help them to have the courage to tell someone so that we can rejoice together that you have found another child who was lost and brought them into the family. God, don't let us, don't let us ever keep anyone away because we've added anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ that doesn't belong there. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day.